Welcome, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed the keynote. Uh, Dr. Werner had a lot of things to share with you guys. So thanks for taking time to join here. Uh, hopefully, I'll uh, share with you how, you how we drive engineering excellence here. Uh, but before we proceed, this is a level 200 session. It's an introductory session. Uh, we won't be going deep into tools or coding. So those of you who are looking for those, this is probably not the right session for you. Uh, there are other sessions happening. You might want to check them out. Those of you who are looking for code commit, code pipeline, those, there are other sessions as well. So uh, we have, we have a great agenda for the session today. What I'll do is I'll walk you through is how we look at DevOps, uh, how Amazon did it, how we adopted it. What were the lessons learned in the journey? Uh, and there were lots of lessons. Uh, and then finally, if you are looking to start your DevOps journey or you're looking to refine your DevOps journey, I'll talk about uh, where you can start, uh, some easy steps there. My name is Ajit Zardgaukar. I lead the global DevOps practices uh, at Amazon. Uh, before coming to Amazon, I led all in migration at Edmonds in 2013-14 timeframe into AWS. I really like operational efficiency. For me, everything starts there. Uh, and those of you who have worked with me or who know me, I like to make new mistakes uh, within codes, not repeat mistakes. <laughs> so let's get, get going. Uh, when I was customer at uh, AWS, I started really getting involved and started talking to people here is how do they do DevOps? What does it mean for us? And I learned a lot of lessons from there as well. So this uh, today's presentation is a collection of my understanding and what Amazon does, and I will dive in. So let's understand what's really happening uh, around us. And the reality is all of us are really looking for speed and agility. And many times it's coming from our customers, uh, all of us. We are driving that agility, and we are driving need for speed as well. An example is what happens when you go into a page and it doesn't show you what you wanted? You basically hit refresh, and you expect that things will be fixed automatically in fraction of seconds. Same thing we do on the news when you flip on the phone, and it doesn't change. You flip it again, and you say, expect to see something new. So lots of need for speed that we are driving uh, as consumers. And that is phenomenal. It's helping all of us. But it's also driving industries to change. And there's a lot of innovation happening. As, as we see, uh, and you already know, many of our customers are already using cloud as an innovation engine, and it's fueling their growth and new, new ideas. And it's a very meaningful way. Uh, if you see examples how transportation industry has reformed, and there are many examples that you saw in keynotes today and yesterday as well. So when, we, when it comes to goals of IT, it's no more IT or just a development department. It has become a mainline so, uh, mainline business fueling engine. That's how engineering is being done. That's how uh, business are fueling their growth. But they have two big goals today. One is, how do we reduce the cost of the current technology or current operations? How do we, f how do we gain the new level of efficiency so we can fund new innovation from there? And then, not only fund, but also lead the innovation and transform the business so we can reach out to our customers in more meaningful way than ever before. Excuse me. So in a larger landscape, this is how I understand what's happening. Uh, if this was the triangle of energy that was available, then the, uh, on the leftmost side, this is where we are coming from. Uh, where we were spending a lot of energy in uh, maintaining our infrastructure, and a significant energy was getting into those activities. As the cloud started to uh, come into picture, the energy spent on the infrastructure management reduced a little bit, and then that allowed us to focus a lot more energy into innovation uh, and support. The way I define support and we understand here is any activity that requires rework, incident management, bug fixes, rolling out, and other standard support activities that you already know. And innovation is new feature development, new product line, uh, new models. Uh, those are the things we consider. New experimentation, those are all innovation. As you go into cloud, you realize that, uh, you're doing a lot more innovation, and you're able to support uh, more efficiently. That's fantastic. And actually, that's one of the signs we see 
uh, among our customers as they adopt cloud, they start to start their innovation engine. Third triangle is where we like ourselves to be, where we uh, like our customers to be. Uh, that's a state where you can bootstrap your innovation engine a lot more uh, at a speed. Uh, you're focusing a lot more energy on innovating. You're able to bring in agility at scale. You're able to shrink your go-to-market time. Uh, and you're able to do all of that for a lower cost and with lower risk. And that's how I understood DevOps as. DevOps is about getting all those five or six things and how do we fuel that to transform a business. And it's, you do that by exploiting technology, tools, techniques, culture, and we will see uh, in, uh, in a couple minutes about those. This is a report from uh, Puppet. Puppet uh, yearly the release uh, state of DevOps report. Organizations that are already practicing DevOps, uh, these are the numbers from them, shouldn't be any surprise to you. Uh, they, they see 440 times shorter lead times. They have 30 times more frequent deployments. That's great. I always like other three. Uh, they have 60 times fewer failures. That is significant. It saves significant efforts from going back on reworking on things that failed. They also have 21% less unplanned work. That is, again, a significant bucket. Saves from reworking. That's all support. And they are able to focus on new work, 44%. These numbers are significant. That's how you focus more on innovation. As you know, we move, uh, we, we have a significant pace at uh, AWS. And you know uh, how, we, how quickly we can spin around and we can release new features and new services. It's not only about how many services and capabilities we have, but it's also how quickly we can spin and uh, come up with new services and lots of choices, and you already know that, uh, and I hope you're keeping it tight about all new, all new things are being announced. So th this is a glimpse of what we can do on the volume side. Uh, but let's talk a little bit uh, more details. So we have thousands of teams, uh, and we call them two pizza teams. I'll explain you what those are. We have decoupled microservices architecture, for the most part, and then we have uh, almost all uh, teams practice continuous delivery all the way to production. And we have multiple environments. Uh, and we talk about the deployments, it's not just a standard application deployment, but we have several types of deployments, whether it's configuration, your application, infrastructure, we consider all of those as code. And when we talk about deployments, we talk about all of them. So uh, in our understanding, everything is code. And coming together, we do millions and millions of deployments a year. In 2014, uh, the number was a little bit over 50 million deployments a year. So ho hopefully that gives you a volume-wise and speed-wise and how agile we are. And Dr. Werner talked about how, how critically we focus on durability and reliability. Uh, that was a theme for our uh, keynote talk today. Uh, and that all uh, comes as our DevOps practice, and we'll see how we do that. So before we jump into how, let's see. Uh, we're talking about how to bootstrap our innovation, how to bring in agility at scale. How do, we, how do we do that at speed? And how do we do that while still constantly increasing our quality? And all, doing all of that in a cost-optimized manner. So let's see how Amazon does it. At Amazon, we understand DevOps is a three-legged stool. It's a cultural philosophy, it is practices and patterns, and it is tools. And what it does is it helps us align entire organization's mindset. So we all are thinking similar way. It, it helps us enable our engineering. And with the tools, we empower our builders. And that's how we gain momentum and speed. And when we talk about cultural philosophy, there are a lot of things that comes into play. Many of those uh, are leadership principles guide us. How many of you have read AWS leadership principles? Please raise your hand. Not many. Uh, I started reading about it when I was AWS customer several years ago. Uh, was my first read up on that. It changed how I operate today for good. And it, uh, it, changed, it, it has a heavy influence on how, how I think and I operate. 
So those of you who are interested, take a look at it. There are 14 principles. Number one is customer obsession. We are really obsessed uh, with our customers and we want to make you all happy. And that I hope that reflects in how we operate and what we work. Over 90% of our features are uh, and list and priorities are governed by what you ask for. Uh, we have other uh, principles as well. Uh, among many, my favorite is bias for action. You must have heard see something, say something. And in our case, it's see something, do something. So we take it to the next level. And then there are type B, deliver results. Uh, all of these are not just there to be on the website, but we really practice uh, and we, we live those. But Amazon wasn't like that. Uh, the number of deployments that you see today and all these principles existed, the goals existed, but engineering wasn't like that. Uh, so I wanna take you a little bit in the memory lane, uh, how it was, uh, the development at Amazon was. So back in the day, it was a huge monolith, uh, really very tall, uh, mon really just monolith. <laughs> all of the developers were working on a single product and uh, the monolith was getting even bigger and bigger day by day because everyone was working on a single product. Uh, well, that was, that was okay in a way, but it wasn't scalable, it wasn't okay very soon. We started to come into way of each other, uh, artifact was getting bigger and bigger, so deployment times were getting much longer, things were getting complicated, dependency metrics were getting messed, and it was a standard flow that you see here. It was build and then uh, look at create the services and make it even bigger and then go build and then go do test and release. But it wasn't, we were not able to move as fast. And it was causing a lot of, a lot of unhappiness among our, uh, ourselves, developers, builders, uh, business, everyone, even customers, we were not able to move as fast. So clearly it wasn't the place where we wanted to be. Something had to be done. Uh, so something that we do really well here is when we see something as a problem, we go and work harder and we try to fix it. Uh, clearly this was again not the way. Amazon started as a startup, wanted to have very customer focus, have a very uh, crisp view onto innovation, have a grasp on that, and also have agility. And all these prominent three things were impacted. Uh, we were not able to make customers happy, we were not agile enough, we were doing only a few releases a year, and of course, uh, it was taking a lot of time as well. So uh, we had to go back and figure out how do we do things uh, a little bit differently. And how do we go back uh, and redefine what we wanted to do? We wanted to go back and really uh, see how do we move faster. And the question was how? So how do you do that? How do we go back to where we came from? How do we attain that we are setting our, ourselves out for? And some of the things we thought about was, how do we organize ourselves in focused teams? How do we not get indulged into activities versus how do we go back to we talking about outcomes? And uh, in, in short, many things that we started when Amazon was started, we wanted to see how we do that. And how do we move fast? Uh, it's not only about uh, the outcomes, it's not only about uh, the, the skills, but we wanted to talk about capabilities and how do we become from activity-based organization to product-based organization. So th those, those questions came in front of us. Many times, many of us understood that if we really wanted to go back and work like a startup, but you know, there was a lot more going on. It was driven by our software architecture limitations. It was driven by how big they were getting in. So uh, obviously something was uh, needed to be done. So. So what we did was uh, something different. Uh, we came back and we looked at the problem. We said, these are the different activities that were typically going in. This was in 2001, uh, Amazon.com retail website. AWS didn't exist back then. And started to see what can be done there. So we came up with five different commandments. Number one was, really we wanted to have everything, uh, everything be just wrapped around services. And we mandated that every team will expose their data only through interfaces and services. Meaning we are talking about really HTTP REST services. 
And second was, there was no way that you could directly communicate to other teams' databases directly. You have to, again, go through the services. Third was, the only way you are going to interact is with through HTTP. Uh, and, and, and some of the other uh, elements of those, like uh, you can use any technology you want, but again, it had to be interfaces, services, and HTTP. And that's how we operate today. We, uh, our builders have a large toolbox. They can use anything from the toolbox, and there is really no limitation. We don't kill creativity by limiting it. But there is a standardization of our toolbox, and we'll talk about that. And the fifth was, we must design our interfaces in a way that we can externalize them if we wanted to. Uh, so there was no backdoor entry for any other teams. Each teams were black boxes to each other. So with those five commandments, we said we could do something different. Uh, so we went back, we looked at breaking activities into fine-grained units. Uh, and some of those activities, as you see, example activities are labeling, shipping, stocking, and similarly shopping cart and checkout and many of those activities. We looked at them. And then what we said is, how about assigning each of them uh, a small team? The idea of small team was so that we, can, we wanted to create focus groups. These focus groups can focus on specific outcomes. Uh, so what we're really talking about is we wanted to have API-driven, really decoupled architecture and microservices on the technology stack. But on the other side, we are looking at small teams. We call them two-pizza teams. The idea, uh, the word two-pizza is have your team size small or big enough that if you were to order food for an entire team, you order two pizzas, uh, and you should be able to do, serve everyone's uh, food for everyone. Uh, on the, uh, so besides two pizza teams, we were moving from, uh, we were, we were be becoming more like an internal startups. And we also said this, uh, within the small two uh, pizza teams, whatever we build, you build it, you run it. So what we did was we, went next, and the next challenge was, how do we make those independent small teams operate like a startup? And that was a significant change in how we were working. Uh, and we talk about these teams, uh, we're just not talking about a, a regular team, we're talking a very highly empowered, motivated team. And our teams, they not only know their customers, uh, but they know who, who you are, how you use it. They are encouraged to know the customers really well. So not only we can know how you are using the product, but also can, is there an opportunity for us to some, do something better for you on your behalf or reach out to you and show you how to do things better. So uh, the outcome of that started to happen. And uh, as you know, uh, the way we operate today, it started from there. But we were able to reach uh, a higher degree of customer satisfaction. We, uh, it started to fuel our customer obsession. And then ownership was very well defined, and it started to go uh, much deeper because this team was building and uh, they were running in production as well. There was a lot of freedom to innovate. Remember, they could use any technology. Uh, and of course, it started to drive agility as well because teams knew what their customers are, what customers are looking for, and the trends and all of that. So it allowed them to have a lot more responsive approach versus reactive approach. While that was going on, uh, we looked at even more uh, data a little bit differently. And we said, what can we do something more? Uh, and that was, uh, like I mentioned earlier, how do we move from activity-based mindset? And activity-based, what I mean by that is uh, QA activity or operations activity or development activity or release management activity. There are lots of activity on how we do things and what we do here. So instead of having activity-based, is there a different model that we can do? So uh, again, uh, what we did was uh, we went back from activity-based uh, model to a product-based model. So we had dedicated product teams, but we did a different slicing. It also established much deeper ownership end-to-end uh, -end and uh, a longer retain, uh, retain, retainment of the ownership as well. Uh, Within our teams, each team started to prioritize their work a little bit differently. They knew what their customers are, like I mentioned. But they were able to prioritize working with customers as well. Uh, they, they were chartering their own agenda. And they were empowered to do that by having this mindset moving from activity to product and moving from project to product-based approach, from activity to outcome-based approach, uh, from skill set to capability-based approach. That, that started to change our mind instead of thinking about what this feature is doing versus what do we 
what this feature enables our customers to do, how, what capability it drives. And there was a fundamental shift, again, on, in our mindset. So while I'm uh, talking, don't think that this was an overnight change. Uh, it, the journey was started in 2001, and it, it continues even today. Uh, so remember, DevOps is a, is a journey, not a destination. So to give you uh, how we operate, uh, so while we, uh, we changed the product uh, from project-based model to product model, uh, our team started to adopt uh, Agile. And when we talk about Agile, it's not a bookish scrum or Kanban or any of that. Actually, our teams are free to use any of those, and they def define and decide whatever duration they want to work on. If can be one week sprint or two weeks or three weeks. More or less, uh, teams have settled on a two-week sprint. But no one is forcing them to use this tool or another tool. Many of our teams actually do manage just the stickies. And our, our goal is very clear. What we want to have is everyone be clear on priorities what we work on, how we work on, what you work on, and provide that visibility not only within the team, but outside the team as well. We are a fairly large organization. Uh, and there are internal customers. We all are customers to each other. Remember, uh, each service is a black box to other service. So we all are a service owner for a small team. And so uh, that's how we uh, do Agile here. But we also do, uh, do other things uh, for efficiency. I've not seen our teams discussing, is this a five-point story, 20-point story, medium, large, t-shirt sizes, none of those. We actually get on. Uh, we look at what our priorities are, what our customers are asking for. Uh, there are always about 10% things that we want to do ourselves. Uh, that's how we fuel the creativity. But we are, when we are doing that, we, we are constantly thinking about what are the outcomes. So we go, we look into uh, typical scrum on day one, we'll go into, we'll look into what's happening, we'll dig into the stories, we'll decide what needs to happen, we'll come up with the architecture. Next two days, we'll meet and discuss. Uh, so th that's pretty much what we do. We don't waste time until Scrum retrospective, which goes on for hours, talking about what did not work. Instead, if something is not working, we fix it right away. Remember, again, these are small two pizza teams, and these are the teams that are taking end-to-end -end accountability. So next, what happened was when we were establishing a Can you hear me back? All right. Sorry, I think I lost mic for a second. So what it, ha what it did was teams not only knew what they're working on, they started to save energy onto things that were just the overhead for them, but they started to focus on more results and outcomes, and they started to think big. And that was a fantastic outcome of how we did and what we did. It also discouraged silos within the teams that we were observing when we were an activity-based model. Uh, it, the standard example is, oh, I'm waiting on QA to come back and tell me when they are ready, or I'm waiting on uh, operations, and operation is saying I'm waiting on development, or design, or architecture. I mean, these, this should be very familiar to you if you're not practicing uh, DevOps. And they, they healthily got discouraged because two pizza teams didn't have a place to hide. They were so empowered, if they were waiting on QA, they went ahead and did the QA. They didn't have a need to wait for the someone to deploy a product for them. They were empowered, they could do deployment, but they were the teams who were taking end-to-end -end responsibility. If something didn't go well, they are the ones you fix it. You heard it loud and clear this morning as well. You build it, you run it. So again, different level of ownership that was established uh, over the years and throughout we worked with our teams on motivating them and encouraging them to follow that model. We also learned how to work together. And when I talk about work together, it's not just creating a team, a five, seven people team with uh, two people from QA, two people from development, and one or two people from operations. That's not how it works. What it works is you have five people who can do most of the activities that are needed. And that's how we know we learn to work together. It requires, it required, and it continues to require all of us to learn new things every day. And that is one of our uh, leadership principles as well, learn and be curious. We fundamentally are builders. We like to build new things. We like to learn new things. And that is healthily encouraged within the teams as well. And by doing that, we started to learn more. So if an example, on day one of new team, probably I don't have background on how do I do testing? So I went ahead and learned it. 
there were subject matter expertise available who were providing that cushion, they were providing that coaching on how to learn that. And that's how we scaled it to all other teams. Over time, more and more skill sets started to happen within the teams, and teams become more autonomous, more independent. Uh, even uh, many of our teams are completely independent, but when they need help, we have security expertise, architecture expertise, all of our service expertise available, and they can go and they can uh, seek help from them. So further, to give you an idea about what our two PISA teams do, uh, these two PISA teams are real engineering teams, but they do all of the activities. They write their application code, they write their infrastructure code. Uh, everything is code, we don't differentiate with them. So it's no more it's operations job or development's job or someone else's job. They write all types of code. They also review code of each other's. And code review is one of the big investment we do every sprint. And it's not taken by any means lightly. We, we are not necessarily looking for code linting. For those, we have code linting tools. But here we are really asking those hard questions. Is there a better alternate way to do things? Uh, can it be done differently? And if so, what are those ways? And if there is a way, is it performant? Is it going to be scalable? Is it the most cost-effective way? Uh, is it going to be resilient, durable? Uh, all of those questions are asked when we are talking about the reviews. And every member participates, and they, uh, they invest their time so we don't have to come back and rework on the same piece of code. So it's a very significant investment that we do in every, uh, uh, every line of code. Same team writes all type of tests, as you see there. Uh, they, they know how to connect to a database. They know how to connect to, uh, and fire queries. Uh, at times when they need some expertise uh, to go to and uh, seek help to how to optimize queries or how to optimize databases, they go to their subject matter expertise and they get help. Uh, but for the most part, as you see here, they do a lot of these activities. Uh, last one uh, on the list is they, they do carry pager. So for some reason, for some reason, if their product or service is not working the way they want it, or the performance is lower than they wanted, or any of the other KPIs, we track everything, and if it's not looking perfect, then the, the unsaid rule what we have is, if things are not being perfect, then drop everything and work on it until it's perfect again. And they carry the pager. So it's again, it helps us establishing responsibility and providing visibility to the folks who are actually building it. That's how the, you build it, you run it, but visibility is an important part of it. And when we talk about visibility, it's what's happening now. Is it standard? Is it perfect? Is it the, according to the baseline? If not, what can I do? When, uh, if I, I'm not seeing something instead of what can I do versus can it be auto-healed? Automagically, you put something behind, and that's how we increase efficiency uh, as we go. So that's, again, significant part of the two PISA teams. Not only they take end-to-end -end ownership, they also create different tools and utilities for themselves so they don't have to do things manually, and that allows them to focus on what differentiates them, what the ultimate value they bring, and the core value they bring is working and building things. So it worked really well uh, during the transition. Uh, in 2009, uh, we do surveys here among our employees all the time. Builders said, well, it's far better than 2001. We are able to move much faster. That was great. There was a lot more innovation happening. AWS had bond by then. So in 2009 survey, they said, well, things are great, going well. Uh, teams had started building those internal tools uh, 10, 15 years from ago from now. But they thought something can still be improved. And in 2009, they started to work on a uh, CICD uh, pipeline, uh, the pipeline product that we have. And this, this thought they could actually automate all of that. Uh, but it was not just a CICD pipeline. We wanted to do something different. It's not just about orchestration. Anyone can create orchestration. But having a framework that allows to move artifacts in a more secure manner, allows teams not to fall off the cliff, was needed as well. Uh, so we like to think in terms of guardrails. And guardrails is, uh, is a concept. If, if you explore that a little bit, it starts from knowing what we want to do, and for that we create blueprints. Blueprints are best practices, reference, reference architectures, many of that we share with you. Uh, if you haven't checked out, you, you should make a 
look up on Google or go to AWS, look for reference architecture, there are many. We have that internally as well. So those uh, best practices are shared across the teams. We create those blueprints. Now when the blueprints are created, they are for the best practices. Guardrails are to protect us from anti-patterns. Blueprints, patterns. Guardrails, a safety net. So it's important, it's, it's very important to follow the best patterns and best practices. It's equally important to catch anti-patterns and block them. So that we do with guardrails, and there are thousands and thousands of checks in our guardrails. Uh, you heard, you already know some of those, but teams started to do that because it was their responsibility not only to focus on their application, they were also running the infrastructure. They needed to know if their, art, their application is running on the right version of operating system, an example. Does it have the right configuration on all the boxes? Uh, does it have the compliance that they're looking for? So all of that comes from uh, guardrails. Of course, there are testing in as well. But now that you have blueprints, then you have guardrails, how do you actually scale it up? And that Amazon does with templates. So we have templates for many, many templates for many, many things. What templates does it, it gives a bootstrapping framework. Not only you can bootstrap new team with those best practices, but you can socialize them, you can scale them. And the next is, once you have templates, best practices, and entire patterns catcher, then have them on to go through the pipeline. So our pipeline feature is dearly loved inside company as well that helps us move millions of artifacts and millions of deployments that we do uh, throughout the, uh, all the time that happens. And that moves with the guardrails. And that saves us. So it's not only about, uh, remember, uh, and when we talk about speed and DevOps, it's, it's not a unidirectional, it's not a unidimensional aspect that you're looking at. You're looking at the different aspects. One is agility and speed and the, uh, lowering the risk, lowering the cost, gaining more performance. So you don't have to come back and rework. If you have to come back, that's stealing away your time from doing innovation. So we want to do it in a way that we, we can focus on innovation. So now the templates were ready. How do we go back? and share with the rest of the team. And uh, that's, uh, that's important part of it. If we have thousands of teams. If one team is always doing well, but they cannot teach others, or we cannot leverage the best practices and best lessons that they have learned to other teams, then it does not scale. So we invested in sharing the patterns, and uh, patterns and learnings, best practices, and we invest into that heavily. An example of that is we meet every week. We talk about operational issues. And we talk, when we talk about operational issues, we are not necessarily focusing on who did it, <laughs> but we are focusing on why it happened and what can be done to fix it. And there's a very healthy discussion about what are the different approaches that can be taken, what is the blast radius, are there others who are impacted or might be possibly impacted. We come together, and thousands of us come every week to attend such meetings. And once uh, we find out the issue, there is a complete follow-up, how it's gonna get fixed. What is the solution? Can we actually have automated solution that can find what other places this issue might happen and uh, automated fix that we can apply to all other places? If we have, in most cases, we have a fix, then go back and add into guardrail so it never happens again. And that's how our guardrail has been working for so many years that it has matured over time and it is such a rock solid. And when you talk about guardrails, you can include all types of things there and well-architected framework should guide you on what can be included there. Uh, security checks, op operational excellence, uh, and that's a real deal. Now, how many of you have looked into well-architected? Uh, Thank you, quite a few hands. Uh, take a look at it, it's, it's significant. And when we're talking about DevOps, if you don't build things in, in your architecture, if you don't think about operationability aspects from uh, beginning, if you are not thinking about security and performance from beginning in your architecture, then what happens is it discovers a little bit late. Not only you are impacted, your customers are impacted, you have to come back, redo the whole thing, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's not a good use for anyone's time. So th that's how we socialize our learnings. That's how we uh, enrich our guardrails. We rev our templates, we circulate them, uh, and that's how we learn. 
The next thing that, uh, while this was going on for these many years, other thing that started to happen was as a part of efficiency and templates, teams started to create a little bit different utilities, like pipeline was one of them. They needed to make sure that they have different, uh, how do they check configuration rules? Uh, how do they share the parameters? How, where, how do they secure keys? And they all started to become part of guardrails. Over time, uh, I want to show you a picture of how our guardrails look like. Uh, thankfully, all of these different tools eventually became public service for you. Uh, so you can consume them. So you don't have to start your journey back to 2001 like we started, and it took us several uh, years to get there. And you can start your building your guardrails. But this is how our overall DevOps pipeline looks like as well. Uh, there are many, many tools that make makes it. It's not just one CI/CD orchestration, but there are many angles and aspects of it. How do you do backups? How do you restore it? Uh, how do you do intrusion detection in your pipeline? How do you know that it's uh, your applications are not leaking uh, PI or any sensitive information. So Amazon may say you can scan your logs, stop the pipeline if it finds anything. Uh, guard duty is a similar one. So there, there are many, many such tools that make up our uh, overall uh, posture, and there are more than this that I can fit into a slide. But there are other tools. We want to have a richer experience for our builders. So there is uh, all the code suite. There's a code pipeline, there's a code uh, commit, uh, there's code build. Uh, any of you are using any of these tools? How many of you are using code pipeline? A few hands. Code build. If you, if you want to have thousands of builds go at one time, you know, code build is very uh, popular among our customers. You can save time there. So as you see there, there are other uh, tools that teams needed. For an example, they needed to have visibility uh, on what's going on. So dashboard came out of that. Uh, AWS config, you can use that to see if your configurations are in consistent manner that you wanted. And not only they can alert you, but you can connect them with Lambda and they can remediate. CloudWatch is another uh, tool where everything is going there in logs, events, metrics. So uh, I can go on and on, and there are many tools here, but Systems Manager is another one and that can help you manage your parameter store, that can help you do automation. If you're coming from the systems background, then you know how critical, important, and time-consuming it is to update uh, OS version or patches applyment, so patch management. You can do a lot of those things with Systems Manager. You can create your AMI factory with those. And all of those things we do, uh, our builders do as well, and we automate it, so we don't have to go back and spend time in doing infrastructure management, and we can focus on things that matters. Uh, so that was a glimpse on how we do things, but let's, uh, dive straight into lessons learned. What I want to try to do is I want to end the session a little bit sooner so you can ask questions. Uh, I, I know you have lots of questions. So let's see if we can do that. So there were many lessons learned uh, in DevOps journey. Uh, I want to talk about five of them today. The number one is DevOps is not just a technology transformation. Remember, the goal for DevOps is to exploit technology, tools, practices, culture, and use them in a way that fuels you in organizational level transformation. You are looking for organization level agility. You're looking for speed at the broader level. And for that, it's very, very critically important that you include the entire organization. An example of that might happen if you don't do that. If you're just doing moving into cloud or you're doing DevOps, and your finance team have no idea on what it means. Or you're asking your team members to learn new things, but probably if HR knew that this is happening, they can provide a better structure for training. Your procurement team needs to know uh, how you're operating, so they can create uh, landing zones for you or other things that will allow you to uh, provision resources. So there are many such things that happens if you include everyone in the organization. The downside is if you don't, then you have to go back and uh, not only disrupt your progress and speed that you're making, but you have to go back and work with them and educate them. So the best practice is when you're talking about change, and that for the broad, for the most part, it's applicable to any change management, that you start including every part of the organization, and that gives you a lot more momentum. Oh, <laughs> sorry. And the second one, uh, the lesson uh, that's important, uh, that is guardrails. So use guardrails. 
And don't look at guardrails in isolation, but think about best practices, uh, uh, blueprints, find anti-patterns that comes from the guardrails directly, look at the templatizing it. Once you have the templates, think about how do you take a scale it out. Uh, one of the tools that we released last year is Service Catalog, very popular among our customers as well. You can put all of your templates in Service Catalog. So if you're starting a new project, onboarding a new team, they can vend the templates from there and they are off to the ground. That's how we do it internally as well. And eventually that tool came out to help you all. So uh, look at the broader level when you're looking at belts and suspenders as a guardrail. It's not only about following good behavior, good patterns, but it's very, very important to find anti-patterns and block them, standardize your tools, standardize the way you operate, that way you can put automation behind to gain momentum and speed uh, and pace. And when you find anti-patterns, you know what to do, you block it or uh, do something about it. The third lesson is really focus on patterns of efficiency that uh, not only helps you drive the change, but also change your engineering processes and how you work. And CACD is part of one of the way of patterns of efficiency, but there are many others as well. Overall, we have seen automation is number one, but service catalog is another one. Landing zone is another one. We, we have talked about several services uh, over the last couple of days and before as well, but they all come together make uh, patterns of efficiency. Two pizza teams. Uh, make a very focused teams, make a very focused approach on moving from activity to the outcome. Move from uh, project-based approach to product-based approach so you have a longer term, more deeper accountability. Instead of focusing and talking about just features, talk about capability, what you are able to do, what you're capable to do, what you're enabling your customers to do. And those are significant patterns of, these are significant patterns that not only helps you operate better, but they also helps you gain efficiency in long term. Number four on my list is really uh, important part, implement resiliency testing very early in the cycle. Uh, in our case, we write the code and we write infrastructure code, we provision, we do everything. So it's much easier for us to include our resiliency testing from the beginning for all three tiers. In a classical three-tier application, uh, you're looking at all three tiers, but don't forget your platform that drives uh, all the application all the way to production. It's, don't look at it as just a release management. That's the mother of how it's going. It's mother belt. That's, it's a conveyor belt that's taking it out with the guardrails in place. So you, uh, you have to start thinking about what happens in failure. Uh, would it automatically roll back? Are you doing blue-green? Can you actively switch back? Are you doing canary deployment? Are you doing control testing? All of those think it different, different way. They, are, they all together give you resiliency that you're after and really fail things. And there's a whole chaos engineering. We had a session earlier this uh, early, uh, I think there may be a repeat as well. Check it out. If not, then it will be on YouTube soon, hopefully. You can check it out. But really include that resiliency testing so you know much ahead of time what's coming and what's happening. If you discover things in production, it's already too late. The only thing you can do is react, not respond. And that resiliency testing doesn't have to be included only on the technology side. You can start including business folks. They can know you have to have org level plan. If something really goes south, then what do you do? Not only as engineers, but everyone in the organization think much broader. And you can include DR strategies. You can look at active failovers. There are many, many things that can be driven once you start to do resiliency testing. Now, when we talk about change management, it's important to know and important to implement, the more visibility you provide to rest of the organization within the team, for yourself, all, for everyone, it's very critical to have that observability. And observability is logging, monitoring, alerting, notification, remediation, and visibility dashboards. Basically, just provide visibility of everything to everyone who needs to know. That way, not only there's an advantage that everyone is aware of what's happening, everyone know if it's normal, if it's not normal, and if it's not normal, what's happening. But it also helps align the organization to look at the, and focus on things that are not normal. Uh, it, it, it's a fundamental part of how you drive the change, and it helps you gain uh, efficiency there. So these are the five uh, lessons that uh, I've learned uh, from 
uh, observing uh, things at Amazon and also by implementing DevOps in my previous life as well. Uh, that will help you if you try to uh, go that order. So now the big question. Uh, many of you, how many of you are looking to start your DevOps journey? Few, how many of you are already in journey? That's cool. How many of you think you are on the, you have perfected DevOps? Okay, that, that's a good sign. Yeah, remember, <laughs> remember that it, it is a journey, it's not a destination. It, it really is a journey because you're constantly improving. It's about adaptive learning and implementing in your organizational processes. It's including them into your engineering process, processes. And it's not that difficult. If you really think from that perspective, it's a step-by-step -step process to get there. And we can do it. Many of our customers are doing it. You have raised your hand, so many of you. Uh, you all can do it. So what are the steps to get there? That's a busy map. <laughs> no, I don't want to scare you. These are all simple activities. And the truth is, you can start on any of those. There is, no, there is no dependency on any of these. You can start wherever you want. You can start aligning your organization mindset. Or you can start thinking about how do I align three Ps, people, process, and product. How do I start aligning them? Or how do I define my pilot team? I want to create a small team that will do experimentation, and they'll create templates and guardrails, and how do I take it out to the rest of the organization? Maybe you want to start there. Many of you are thinking about, oh, I want to go back and create guardrails. Don't stop. Please go ahead and do that. Uh, many of you might be thinking, oh, we have activity-based teams. We want to change our operating model of how we do engineering, and we want to move to a different model. Go do that. Many of those things will require uh, probably a sponsorship or support from your leadership, your managers. Uh, go seek that input. Bring them in. Uh, bring more people in. Start talking about inclusiveness there. You can create your two pizza teams. There are many, many things here, but ultimately, uh, if you want to grow there, then you have to have things in place. If, uh, start paying attention uh, to observability factors. Are you really logging and monitoring events and emitting metrics at all level? App code level, application level, platform level, infrastructure level, external factors. How do you know if something is failing, where it's failing? Otherwise, you will just waste your time moving from one place to another place to another place. Include all the data, apply some machine learning principles, use time series database that we just released yesterday, use forecasting. There are a lot of things that you can do once you have the observability in place. Uh, but eventually, you will have to start your journey somewhere uh, to get there. In my mind, I don't want to leave you with so many things. If those of you who are looking to start your journey, you might want to start with three easy steps. And those are start small, learn quickly, iterate fast, and then set a framework. Once you have the framework, think about how are you going to scale it? How are you going to socialize it? If you don't have a tool for it, take, go, go take a look at service catalog. That might help you. Go take a look at landing zone. Uh, if they don't meet something, build something, put it on GitHub. We might like that. Uh, or if not, then come back to us, provide us feedback. We take your feedback. That's how we work. Tell us. But the most important part, once you know what you've figured out, the first two steps, don't become the isolated team in the entire company. They are the only team who knows about it. That's not how it scales. You will become a pseudo-operations team. You will become a team between development and operations, and uh, you might want to call yourself whatever you want to call, but at the end of the day, it will not meet your purpose. The idea is everyone should be talking about enabling each other. Remember, DevOps is a, is a journey for everyone, and you win it by enabling each other. And don't forget, you are doing all of those to gain higher level organization goals. You know someone who keeps making mistakes? He got it how DevOps is. But, <laughs> Uh, I, I really think DevOps is a much bigger journey, and it's, a, it's about using tools, technologies, our mindset, changing our mindset, gaining velocity, gaining agility, and doing all of those in tandem and together in a nice consortium to go and help our business become more agile, help our business reach out to our customers at a faster rate. So with that, there are some other interesting sessions that are happening.
uh, you might want to check it out. Uh, but we have about 10 minutes. Uh, as I promised, I'll keep time so you can ask questions. Mics are up front uh, if you're interested. Uh, if you have questions, please uh, go up to the mic, ask questions. Others can hear that question. And before you decide to leave, uh, please provide feedback. If the session was helpful, uh, please go ahead and do that. Uh, questions, please. Yes. Hey, uh, Ajit, thank you. That was a fantastic presentation. Um, uh, we, in my company, we move towards the DevOps uh, model. We're early in the stages of our uh, journey. Um, we have teams that are building in-house on AWS, but mm -hmm. they're also still responsible for owning vendor applications. We're trying to get rid of those, but some of them will stay with us forever. Do you have any experience in that area? Any, any gems you can share on how teams can manage those, both of those things? Yeah, uh, like you heard in Keynote as well, uh, we, we are trying to migrate away from Oracle. And there are many God's applications. And reality is we all have come from that world. Before coming to AWS, in my journey, I started using different products. There's nothing wrong in it. If you look at the new age uh, tools and products, they all are API driven now. So there are interfaces. So uh, it works both ways. One is focus on what is within your control, try to move things that way. The other is start asking your partners and vendors, then can you actually fit into my model, make me successful? So it's a two-way approach, uh, and there may be other ways as well where uh, maybe product is end of the line, upgrading and going to the next level, or maybe even working together, like how we work with you or you work with us in giving the requirements. I don't see it's any different than anything else, where we work together and make a common vision and mission for all of us to go conquer. Thanks. Ajit, one, oh, sorry. Sorry, I think sorry. she has a question. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I just dropped the mic. Yeah, uh, hello, thank you for the presentation. My question was about the guardrails. So uh, who owns them? Who is sort of uh, obsessed with them? Is it also that there is some kind of a two pizza team structure for those, or is it just like, flock, sort of, it's like mutually owned by these small teams? Um, because the size that we operate at, we do have uh, people who are, who are guarding it, but for the most part, it's self-governed, and we have a guardrail for the guardrails, meaning you cannot take things out. It's a very common pattern when I go across the globe and talk to different executives and their teams on why their DevOps is failing, what they come back and say is, well, the test was failing, so someone wagged it out. <laughs> they weren't, their goal was to move something faster. So in our case, we guard the guardrail. You cannot, things, you cannot take things out. You have, each team's responsibility is to make it even better. They can add it, but you cannot take it out. Now, in all practical reasons, there will be things that will be retired. When uh, you're uh, retiring a COTS application or you're retiring some other thing, then you may have to go and rev up your, but that's a change management. Like you do a change management cab process. We, in our, uh, weekly meeting that I talked about, we do talk about those, and it's a collective decision. But before anything is, gets retired, remember, like APIs, everything is an API, everything is a service, our guardrail is a service, our pipeline is a service, everything is a service, and until and unless all people have moved off from that, we don't retire a thing. So do a life cycle management around all products, services, uh, libraries, whatsoever you're using, and we do the same thing with guardrails as well. So, Jeet, if, if you're starting a pizza team, um, how, would you, how would you finish the sentence? You have to make sure that you have a strong blank to make sure that the pizza team is successful. Conviction and commitment. I'm more from a role perspective. <laughs> I thought that was a quiz. Anyway. Uh, well, uh, on the day one, let's say if we start to decide a two pizza team, uh, all of you, and we join. Now, it may happen that none of us really are from operations. We don't know how to do operations, and how do we go about doing it? Is that something what you're trying to ask? How do you complement the skills? Well, if I had to pick five people for a team, which role is, has to be very strong to make that team successful? Uh, here, we all are builders. And when we don't know something, we go and learn it and we come back. We are very, very curious to learn. So there are days when we don't know, but there are, those days are very short and small. In case, if the team does not have, and let's say 
uh, I'm just making this up. Let's say this team does not have anyone from security expert. We do have security experts available. We do have principal engineers available, and they make themselves available to help you learn it, not to do it. <laughs> so if you ask for help, we teach them how to do it. So that's how two PISA teams learn. But again, two PISA teams know what their timelines are. If they know that this is where we have a dependency on someone to go learn or for all of us to learn, then know what you can do in that two weeks. So it's a, uh, it takes time to learn those skills. It's, it, and there is no secret about it. We, but we are very, very motivated to go and learn. And that's why we are uh, able to do so many services because we are constantly learning. So the, uh, remember, DevOps is about mindset. Uh, it's not only about moving fast, but constantly learning and improving and learning and improving and so on. So learning never stops. Uh, but on day one, probably you may have gaps, but that you can overcome over days. Kind of, kind of in that same vein, what if you have people that are blockers, refuse to learn, refuse to change? Uh, that's a tough one, but do you want to work with them? Do you want to be part of their team? Um, no. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Uh, do you see data collection as a part of your uh, DevOps chain? And uh, how do team do prioritization between data collection learnings from maybe customer requests? So when you're building your platform, you have to include all of those things, so you don't have to really make it an external activity. For an example, you are a team who is running one of the services, or maybe part of the services. Many of our teams are big, so they own the two pizza teams own a particular maybe activity, let's say shopping cart. This team's responsibility is to make sure that they have all the visibility from the get-go. And there are common logging patterns and monitoring patterns, and many of them are already available. Uh, you can go and there are many standards for it, open tracing being one of them. You can start tracing all everything that you wanted. And there are many, many such patterns and practices. But the, over time, what has happened is we have a practice, so you don't have to build something from scratch. But if that does not meet your need, then you have to customize for your teams. So an example is I have all the data, but I don't know what data is useful to you. So you create your dashboard, you create your own views, apply your own alerts that you know you are the subject matter, you are the builders, you are building it, you are giving a birth to a new service, so you know it better, and that's how they do it. Uh, but they do it upfront so they don't have to keep coming back to it. They do come back to it to improve it, uh, but it's part of the DevOps pipeline. And when we talk about the DevOps pipeline, as you know, there are many moving pieces already in there, uh, but everything is just constantly emitting the data. That way it's much easier uh, to just combine them and create a view versus going and trying to now enable after the fact. So and that's also part of it. So I think we're just on time. We'll take this last question and possibly one after that, but we'll end. Yeah, Ajit, one quick question. Sure. Uh, in one of your last slides, like how do we get there, uh, there was a tab that is called three Ps, align your three Ps. Correct. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Uh, yes. So. The three Ps are people, processes, and product, right? So when we say product, that was from going from activity-based teams or project-based team to product-based teams. Uh, the people is what we talked about, the cultural part of it. Uh, the processes make them automated, make them guardrails. So that's how we look at it. And there are many other parts of it is how do you structure organization, other things. Uh, but that's how we look at it high level. This will be the last question, guys. Okay, thank you. Have you witnessed a situation where a two pizza team and the obsession for the customer need is possible if the company's strategy is to highly outsource? So it's like a very minor presentation in the team is actually in your company and everybody else is a contractor. So I don't have first-hand experience here dealing with that, but before coming here, I was in an environment where uh, we had a significant partner sitting outside the country. We were working with them. I think the secret of success being there is very, being very candid and clear on what you're trying to achieve. So it's not about who is working on it and where they're working from it, but being clear on what you're trying to achieve. Uh, if you're trying to tell them it's a piecemeal, small, small work that you are going to finish in two weeks, you have a high standards, 
uh, and you define those standards uh, with well-architected frameworks and all the framework in place, then it just becomes part of the deal. And I remember a couple of years ago when I had to do that, I had to actually go back and work with our outsource team to explain this is what we are looking for. It's not about who does it from where they do it. We all work from wherever you, many of you must be doing that anyways. So it's not about that. It's about really being very clear, candid, and providing that framework so if there is a violation, you can jump on it and stop it right there before it's too late. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Don't forget to provide feedback. I hope it was useful. And enjoy the rest of the reInvent. Thank you, guys.